You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Dr. Kelly Dixon, who's in Missoula, Montana. We are excited to talk with Kelly about a multitude of topics, but before we introduce her to all of you, um, I just want to catch up with my co-host. So, Crystal, how was your week? What's been going on at Extreme History? Well, it was a great week. We've done some fun things this week. One of the things that was super fun is we are working on our documentary, The Story of Us, and we got to go out and do some filming scouting some film scouting, I guess is what you, you call did. it, in Virginia City. So, oh. you know, one of my favorite places in Montana, Virginia City. And so we went out there to look at the locations where Sarah Bigfoot worked and where she lived. And Sarah Bigfoot was a, a, um, a historical figure. She lived in um, Virginia City in the um, 1870s through the early 1900s. She died in Virginia City in 1931. And she actually owned the water company in Virginia City. And so she's going to be one of our people that we focus in on for the story of us. So that's going to be such a fascinating story, one that probably not a lot of people know about. Yeah. So, yeah. So she um, and actually Sarah Bigfoot was black and she grew up enslaved and after um, she was freed, she came to Montana on her own. Wow. And so, yeah, and so her story is so fascinating. And, and like you said, Nancy, not a lot of people know about her. So um, a book was just recently written on her by um, Dr. Laura Arada and really filled out Sarah's life. And so it was perfect timing and because we could kind of glean some of her research <laughs> and do this, do That's some great. of our research. But we looked at we looked at the location where Sarah Bigfoot lived. We looked at the place that she worked and some of the property that she owned. Um, not only did she own the water company in Virginia City, but she was an entrepreneur and Owned, bought and sold land, and so she was. She's oh, I an like interesting, her more and more. I know. She sounds like a role model for all of us. Right, awesome. right. So, so that was really fun to do that. Of course, we've been kind of gearing up for walking tours. Our walking tours are kicking off. Not today, though. It's Not snowing, today. right? Oh, oh my thank goodness! goodness. Is but it I, snowing in Missoula. We'll have to ask Kelly that. When yeah. Um, but I did do some walking tours today, which was interesting in the snow. You um, did? Yeah, I did walking tours for a group of sixth graders and a group of seventh graders. Oh, so they were forced to come. I they see. Were the forced. non-paying clients. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good for yeah, you guys. Yeah. How did it go? Oh, it was great. You know, the sixth and seventh graders are so fun, and the questions they Aww. ask are so good. 
And um, do they learn about the brothels or the red no, light district? Okay, no. just so curious. It, it yeah. was what the tour we were doing today was a cemetery tour. So oh, yeah. that's good. So though. we were in the nice. cemetery, which of course another one of my favorite places. Sure. So so we did um, the the walking tour with snow falling on our heads, wow. but that was okay. It was a little chilly, but you know they were they're tough Montana kids. They so. are. They are. No school days, no snow days here. No, no. What about you, Nancy? How was your week? Oh, my week was fun. Um, my friend uh, Shara Bailey, Dr. Shara Bailey, the paleo anthropologist that we interviewed a while back, she was out visiting from New York, and uh, she loves Montana, hopes to come out. So we were having a great time because it actually wasn't snowing when she was here. So we were doing <laughs> some hiking, and we also... Um, went to Butte, and we looked at a building that's for sale that I desperately want to buy, Crystal. (laughs) It's ridiculous, but um, there's a lot of beautiful buildings for sale. And, you know, because I have the shop here on Main Street, there's a part of me that thinks, well, they need some good clothes in Butte, and, you know, maybe we could. So it's a three-story building that has an antique store in the bottom and then two stories above it. And um, it's it's going for a lot less than houses are going for in Bozeman, I tell you. Yeah. So um, so we we fantasized about um, how we would do that, and I started also thinking that pretty soon we're gonna take a trip there to talk about the the history of chop suey and yeah, that whole yeah. uh, Chinese um, sort of uh, uh, menu uh, restaurant culture that that has developed in in Butte and is still there. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be fun. But um, but mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of cool stuff. Shara had never seen um, the Berkeley Pit. Mm, mm-hmm. She didn't know it was there. Mm. Oddly enough, she had taken a trip there to photograph um, a couple of years back and somehow missed it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't quite know <laughs> Which how you missed it. for me was hilarious, but yeah. I hope she's not listening. Um, <laughs> but that was super fun to be able to talk to her a little bit about that mining history and, and how it's still so present and there's so much pride. And she, she didn't know that whole history of Butte really being such a wealthy Western city. Mm. So it was super fun to be able to talk to her. And then she's also doing some artwork um, drawing some Western scenes and early sort of scenes of downtown Bozeman so that I can put them on tote bags and t-shirts and sell them in my store. That's great. <laughs> so there was a lot of fun, interesting overlap between good, good. Uh, history and commerce going on right. uh, my, in my week. Right. So so that um, that kind of catches us up, I guess, huh? Yeah. 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 Well, okay. good. Well, busy so, weeks as usual. Exactly. So so shall we get to introducing yes. Kelly? Yes. Yes. So Kelly, we're so glad to have you here with us today. Welcome. Glad to be here. Yay. This is going to be a fun one because Kelly always brings a lot of energy to everything she does, and it's hard not to to match that. So uh, this is going to be great. So I want to start off just by introducing you to all our listeners. Uh, Kelly Dixon is an um, anthropologist, and that's the way I think of you, an anthropologist specializing in historical archaeology. And she's a professor at the University of Montana's Department of Anthropology. She specializes in archaeologies of boomtowns, colonization, adaptation, extractive industries, human environment interactions, landscape transformations, and very importantly, marginalized populations and sort of effects of colonialism and colonization. 
So Kelly has lived and worked um, in the North American West for 20 years. Her research includes case studies from this region that underscore the international connections that this region has, which often some people don't think about when they think of Montana. So it's really exciting to have that work becoming more available and accessible, both to residents and to visitors. Dr. Dixon is dedicated to developing student oriented interdisciplinary archaeological research, and she really serves as an amazing mentor to doctoral candidates, master's students, and to undergraduates. While she's been at the University of Montana, Dr. Dixon has been engaged in partnerships with federal, tribal, state, and local government agencies, all of these landholding agencies that have historic archaeological sites on their properties, as well as various stakeholders, um, the communities, descendant communities, other universities, and she works to integrate research and education so that the next generation of archaeologists is better prepared to responsibly and respectively preserve and protect past and present cultural heritage. So welcome, Kelly. We're thrilled to have you here today. We always like to, Kelly, um, start off by asking those that we're interviewing how they became interested in the field of anthropology or archaeology. So can um, you tell us a little bit about how, what brought you to this profession and, and when? and How you got started. How you, yeah, yeah, how you got... Everyone has a really interesting story. Got, yeah, it's always different. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> It would be so fun to put together a book of everybody's origin stories and oh, terms of Oh, what a good idea. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't start out in archaeology or anthropology. I think a lot of us maybe start our stories with that phrase. <laughs> and um, I actually started out being interested in journalism and oh. communications. And I wanted to be a foreign media correspondent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And as part of that, um, I did most of my undergraduate work at the University of Minnesota's Duluth campus, so okay. up cold by Lake Superior. And all I knew is that by my junior year, I wanted to be taking my studies in terms of something practical. Mm-hmm. And so um, I looked at many different international programs, and I just knew that I didn't want to be in an Americanized program where I was in a foreign land, but only with American students and only eating American food and only speaking English. And so I was really looking for an immersive, experiential, educational opportunity. And it ended up that I went to Israel and was based in Jerusalem. And it just so happened that that was during the um, Persian Gulf. Oh, my crisis. word. What an amazing and, experience, um, but scary. I know. Yeah. Right? Remembering when, like, the Scud missiles yeah, were Yeah, I remember being, that. You know, oh. Yes. I was there. I had a gas mask. I had a special room in my apartment in Jerusalem where my roommates, other students from around the world, all lived. And we didn't have any cracks in the windows of our bathroom. And that's where we were going to stay if something happened. Oh and, my you know, what a bonding experience. Place. Oh, my goodness. Wow, Kelly. <laughs> right. I'm so glad you're well, okay. Jeez. <laughs> oh, if, if you if you only knew and, and I won't get into it here, but like it, it is I, I feel like a cat with more than nine lives and I've been blessed. Um, while I was over there, um, several of my professors were anthropologists. And so mm-hmm. without without realizing it, I was being biased. 
Um, and I came to this conclusion, you know, it's interesting because um, the Israeli-Palestinian crisis is on the news again today. Yes, um, it is. Yeah. And I, I had an internship over there and I became accustomed to like being the bag carrier for all the foreign journalists when they came. And they would say wow. they were going to stay for like one or two weeks to get quote unquote full coverage for uh, a story. Mm. And I started to have that, gosh, this is a time immemorial conflict kind of, you know, set of brainstorms. And that if I was going to be a decent foreign journalist, I probably should be studying anthropology. And, um, mm. you know, it. I was having a cultural anthropological experience every day and right. I was required to live with an Israeli Jewish family and live with the Palestinian family and go up to the Golan Heights and visit with occupied Syrians and um, so was trying to get everybody's perspective and decided, gosh, I'm going to double major. I'm going to do anthropology and journalism and I am going to be the hardest working, most ethical foreign correspondent ever. And so I came back to the U.S. Um, quite shaken because oh, we were evacuated man. from the country. Oh, and, my. you know, I like took a loan out and oh, sold your parents must have been terrified. Yeah, they were. Wow. In fact, they I I have memories of like me saying things like, Mom, I'm good. Like a lot of people don't have gas masks and I have one and I have a bathroom without any cracks in the windows. Like I'm good. Oh, my word. Quiet. And started sobbing, oh. and, you know, and I couldn't understand because I, I was so lucky. Um, right, right. Alas, um, imagine after all that, coming back to the states, talking to your advisor at the University of Minnesota, and saying, "I'm interested in anthropology." And so, <laughs> oh my God, you know, I started taking anthropology classes, and I turned into a junkie, and I couldn't get enough of them. But I still loved true anthropology. I thought might be my path. The program I was in required an archaeological field school. Oh, there it yeah, is. You go. Yes. my plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. I've heard this and, one before. <laughs> I know. Like, oh, no. I'm going to spend two weeks in northern Minnesota's Boundary Water Canoe Area Wilderness on the first experimental passport in time program with the Forest Service. Wow. I did, That was my baptism by fire. So I assumed that all archaeology was public archaeology <laughs> because <laughs> I was part of this, you know, group of guinea pigs. Oh, how fun. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and all of a sudden, I wasn't in a stressful situation. Um, yeah. I, I wasn't ducking away from Molotov cocktails. I wasn't gripping the gas mask. I was with a bunch of really amazing people dedicated to the greater good and, and camping. Mm. I know. <laughs> so we're beautiful yeah. with a bunch of smart people. And then you're, and then if you find stuff, that's just icing on the cake, right? <laughs> well, quite it was. And, and I mean, I had that moment of enlightenment that we've all had, like you guys make a living. This is, this is yeah. someone's job. Um, and so I, exactly. I never went back. In fact, I, 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 I had that field school. I got hired as a GS5 with the Forest Service. And like within two weeks of graduating with my BA, already had a job in the field and loved it even more. And um, 
I happened to be in Michigan's Upper Peninsula where I got tasked with all kinds of mining sites. And then I met these people from Michigan Tech who had an experimental master of science program in industrial archaeology. And they wooed me when we were working on a passport and time program in upper Michigan on a mining site. That mining site became my master's project, which ended up getting me a job out west because somebody said, oh, my God, there's somebody who can handle logging and mining sites and historical sites and deal with cultures from all over the world. And all of a sudden, I got jobs with the Tahoe National Forest. I worked up in Alaska, and I was a forest service technologist, and I, they were the greatest days of my life. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, you were on the cutting edge of that, it sounds yeah. like. You you just, like, it all converged. You didn't have a prayer of going back to journalism. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, you know, you must have done something right I with know. that passport in time because it's still going strong, so... <laughs> You know, it's just such an yeah. important oh, program. I was but a mere student, wow. you know, yeah. working with members of the public who were doing this for the first time. And it was, it, you know, it's interesting to reflect back on that, to think how far Passport and Time or Pit, as many of us know it, has gone. Yes. And um, yeah, so I have a soft and special spot in my heart, frankly, Aww. for the Forest Service. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I know for a lot of yeah. people that first time in the field, I, I think it goes one way or the other. You really know if this is something you love and then you're like, you have that moment. Really? You can have a job doing this? I've had so many students say that to me over the years. And then other people are like, glad I did it because I know I don't yeah. want to do this forever. <laughs> I like I yeah. like reading about it or I want to do cultural. Like they just, it's not for them. Or I think Crystal's one of the few that's kind of in the middle ground yeah. where she likes yeah. it, but she has a wide range of interests. So you show up <laughs> and you do small projects and you're super happy with that, right? Yeah. It's kind of the yeah. good, yeah, yeah, a little bit of everything. You know, I, you know, I loved being in the field the first, you know, you know, 10 or 15 years of doing it. But then there's a point where you're like, okay, this isn't really reasonable anymore. (laughs) You know, I can't really do this with having children and a family. And, you know, so there's that time when you just leave the field, you know. Or the people that bring their kids into the field, which a lot of us do. I know. (laughs) Or or you just, you know, you have to just kind of leave it behind. And so that's, um, but but it is, it's it's definitely a lure into this profession, that, that first field experience. Well, definitely. Yeah. Good story. That was one I didn't expect. That's great. Yeah. So, (laughs) so Kelly, let's dive into a little bit of your um, work you've done after your your time at the Forest Service and (laughs) kind of talk about your book, Boomtown Saloons, because so you wrote this book in 2006. And I just loved this book. And it was, you know, it's, it's, It's just a, to me, it was just a kind of a paradigm changing book for the field of historical archaeology. And I, and I loved reading and I used it in the classroom when I taught teachers about archaeology. I always had them read that book because it's very accessible. It's a very accessible book. Um, The public can access it really easily and, and understand what, what archaeologists do in the field and what they learn from doing that work in the field. So so your your book Boomtown Saloons is 
about the excavation of four historic saloons in Nevada City, in Nevada's Virginia City. So not Montana's Virginia City, but right. Nevada's Virginia City. Um, but the two are somewhat similar, I would I would suspect, in their... Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Both mining towns. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And and you look at the physical remnants or the artifacts from these four drinking establishments and you really see um you get a real perspective on everyday life in the mining west. But not only do you discuss the archaeology of the these four places of these four saloons um, but you combine the history and the archaeology to help us better understand the past. So this book is written for the public, and and not there's not a lot of archaeological jargon in it. It's very, like I said, very accessible. But my favorite part of the book is when you include <laughs> uh, these short fictional accounts of what may have transpired in and around these saloons based on the artifacts that were found within. And for me, these vignettes really brought the archaeology to life, um, really made it pop, really made it come to life and and be a living thing. So can you tell us a little bit more about these historical vignettes and why do you decided to include them? That's a really good question because I was really uncomfortable including those in the book. (laughs) Um, It was pushing it, I thought. (laughs) And, you know, for full disclosure, this book is... I like to consider it the good parts version of my dissertation. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I had, I had written the dissertation and the dissertation really focused on the Boston saloon, the African-American saloon. Okay. But I felt like I couldn't properly tell that story without talking about other saloons. And because it was Virginia city, Nevada, um, there were like 100 saloons in Virginia City, Nevada during the heyday. Oh, you wow. know, it's I, I I've always wanted to do. And this is not my idea. This is one of my mentors who's um, a retired Nevada State Historic Preservation Officer, Ron James. Um, Shout out to one Ron of my James. Mentors was a historian. Yeah. <laughs> and he was really influential for me. Um, he not only um, inspired me to work on the book when I was done with the dissertation, but um, he had worked closely with my mentor, Don Hardesty, at the University of Nevada, Reno, to work on other saloon projects. And they had excavated two different Irish-owned saloons well in advance of when I came along. Um, and then before I had excavated with a good, great crew of wonderful volunteers and students, the Boston Saloon, we worked at this other saloon in Virginia City that was associated with an opera house. And it was owned by a German immigrant named John Piper. Um, he was mayor in town at one point and he owned the opera house. And so it was pretty cool to think about that we had this opera house saloon collection. We had the Boston saloon collection and then these Irish saloon collections. And to put them all together was was amazing. And what might we say about the so-called Wild West, at least through the views of these few saloons? And so the the book ended up taking some of those pieces, parts from the dissertation. But I wanted my grandmother to understand what it was I did. And I felt bad for her having to read a dissertation. And so I wanted to write a book 
that my grandmother would read. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> I remember that, that now. Target <laughs> audience. Yes, yeah. I remember you yeah, saying yeah. that in the introduction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was the impetus. And um, uh, however, I still, you know, was raised to be a dorky archaeologist. And so I credit Ron James helping me with my writing to, to help the book Boomtown Saloons come to where it did. Um, but I was also inspired by the one and only James Dietz, who wrote the book mm-hmm. In Small Things Forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, snapshots of colonial America. And I did kind of like how he started out his stories with vignettes like that. Um, and yet it also made me nervous. And so I just wondered what it would be like because I had confidence in the artifacts and, and, and I felt like I could confidently write them into the backdrop of the vignette and not be blowing smoke, so to speak. Um, I also knew in some cases there were historical descriptions of some of these saloons. Um, and the Boston Saloon, because there was a shooting in that saloon, I felt comfortable writing the words, you know, the sound of a gunshot pierced the air of the saloon. Like, okay, I bet that happened. You know, it kind of forced me to think of the sensory experience what do the archival sources, but also the archaeological traces um, evoke in terms of sight, sound, smell? And yeah. so it forced me to think about being human and closing my eyes and walking into those saloons and trying to get not only my grandmother's attention, but somebody else's attention who maybe is like, I don't want to read about the multicultural West. And I, can, I was thinking, <laughs> how can I get them? without preaching i think i will be able to get them gateway style if i tell them a story and i open up my trench coat <laughs> there you <laughs> go the story so um thank you for appreciating them i continue to wonder you know i'm not a fiction writer and i'm not even a faction writer i'm an archaeologist who you know i can write a good old dry descriptive report when you need it but i also you know That's not getting us very far. Mm -mm. What you guys are doing here is. And so I I feel like all of us should take a moment and write or present something for our grandmothers or for a sixth grader or a seventh grader. Um, And we should do it at least a few times a year, if not once a week. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Before we move on, because we kind of want to ask you a few things about this. I just want to quickly ask, do you know, because I loved hearing Crystal say how she used this book. And I know the kinds of trainings you did through Project Archaeology to train teachers. And you could see in the room how how that program was really carefully designed to be able to capture the teacher's attention so then they could go out in the classroom and make that connection for people. And so books like this, and like James Dietz, it's assigned so often in intro to anthropology classes when you have an archaeology section because you know some of these people aren't necessarily going to go on in the field and you want to give them that access you know you were talking Mm -hmm. about so do you know how your book is used now and how it is reflected like I'm not sure I didn't go back and look at any reviews or anything like that but my guess would be that it's it's loved by people who teach anthropology and archaeology to people but let's hear what your thoughts are on that yeah that's that is a really good question and honestly i wish i knew like the exact answer to that um you know i can tell you that like you know the university of nevada nevada press 
sends me a royalty check about once a year, but like it's, you know, like $19. Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't give you a really good clear. That's I don't know what that translates to. Um, however, you know, I'm like, oh my God, you know, we're, we're over 15 years since yeah. that book has been published. Like I'm kind of surprised that, you know, they're still selling copies of it. Yeah. But to be honest with you, um, I have a post-it note on probably every page of the book where I've found mistakes and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my God, you know, from, you know, the first time I held the hard copy in my hand, I was thinking, oh Jesus, this needs a second edition. I should have caught this. How did I miss that? Um, and I've always wanted to do a, you know, a redo. Um, yeah. Frankly, given everything that's happened and now our new lens with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? like... Uh, it's made me go back and and look at my old notes about the Boston Saloon. And it, I, I feel like a lot of the takeaways and conclusions that, that I came to after studying very closely an African-American saloon is that like, oh, my gosh, you know, this kind of work, I, I, I think, still is important to talk about. I think we need to oh, do Kelly, a exactly. to, you know, uh, underscore how we can cultivate mutual respect for the diverse cultures that comprise the history, not only of this country, but of other countries. Like, um, I, I, I would like to have thought that there would have been more books and research like this. So, um, so this so, is exactly where we wanted to go with this is, is that okay. as we were talking <laughs> about your work, I mean, how, how can we not, but I, I mean, part that this is this is what you do but when we were thinking about it um there's another article you wrote about the Boston Saloon in the Archaeologies of Post-Emancipation Life. Do I have that title yeah. right or no? There's, yeah. Oh, there, that was one of the titles, but it's in the book The Materiality of Freedom: The Archaeologies of Post-Emancipation Life. And that book was published in 2011. So that's 5 years after Boomtown Saloons, and that that now that book is now ten years old, and we were looking at each other saying it's a decade later. How many people now would understand that in Nevada City, um, Virginia, Virginia City, City Nevada, Nevada? Sorry, because we have a Nevada City. I'm going to start over with that. How many people? You don't have to edit that, Steve. You can leave that. In. How many people in Virginia know about saloons there? That there was an African American saloon, and more importantly, so we can give something to our listeners. One of the fascinating things you found, which I'd like you to expand on, is that the cuts of meat, the cuts of lamb and beef found in the Boston Saloon, which was, let me just give a little background. You have a, an African-American man born in Massachusetts who moves out to Nevada, gets there around 1860 or so. He is... Um, leaving right as the Civil War is about to break out or has broken out. He comes out, he's shining shoes, and then somehow he builds a saloon, gets the money to build, own whatever. And then we find that this saloon contains not only a lot of amazing artifacts that tell us what life might have been like in there, but it, it, we see, you know, the more expensive, better cuts of meat. So, how many people who come out and have this Hollywood idea of the Wild West, this very Euro-American men are in there, prostitutes are in there, maybe the occasional Chinese immigrant or Native American shows up, but the idea that there is a whole saloon um, and, and how what you've learned from the archaeology 
sort of is in contradiction to what maybe some of what the historical record says. So this all gets to your whole point about where are we now even 10 years after you've published on this and how important it is. And this is why we're like, let's talk about this on this podcast. So dive in a little bit and tell us what, what has been so exciting about the saloon, because more people need to hear about the Boston Saloon in Virginia City. Yeah. Ah, there we go. Oh there you got it. I, and thank you for asking that. And I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, th- there there's a multitude of threads, and I'm going to do my best to be efficient here. Um, but the food did blow me away. And I liked the food because, first of all, um, when you're working with the public and granted, you know, we had hundreds of people pass by our dig site every day. They were on their way to the shootout at high noon and they found out we were digging a saloon and everybody would laugh at a saloon. And then there's always the question, the obligatory question, are you finding any gold coins? (laughs) You know, you always get those. And, um, you know, I would say, well, actually, we did find a gold coin. It appears to have, you know, burned on one side and on the other. But to watch their expressions when we said we were digging a saloon that was owned by an African-American and that catered to the city's African-American population, they would stop and freeze in their tracks. And they would say things like, no way. Right. And then we could, that gave us the chance to say, way. And then when we say, well, what kind of things are you finding? And I'd be like, well actually pretty elegant glassware and, you know, nice cuts of meat. And I already had the context to know that these were on par, if not nicer than what we'd found at the opera house. I was going to ask. So there, yeah, already there was like, you know, comparative things going on on the fly. Um, But, you know, uh, the animal bone part is key. Mm. Um, All of the saloons that were excavated in Virginia City had a faunal record or animal remains that had butchery marks. And you can identify species and meat cuts and say a little bit about foodways, um, in this case, a lot, because we compared the meat cuts based on values during the 19th century across the board at the saloons. And there's a little graph in the book that really drives this home. It's a good graph. Oh, yeah. It's a really good graph. Yeah. Like... (laughs) All of a sudden, like you look at off the charts, the most expensive cuts of meat are coming from William Brown's Boston Saloon is what he called it. And um, I, and then also we found the oldest known Tabasco bottle in the world there, which <gasps> uh-uh. is its own story and such its own story that I'll come back to it. OK, um, good. But like, OK, because yeah, now we're like, a, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Right. You know, oh, my God, don't get me started on the meat. But then there's also the spices. You need the Tabasco. So, I know. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But um, the the issue, though, is I still dearly wanted to engage with members of a dissent community. Mm, Um, And this is kind of getting back to, you know, where did the story of the Boston Saloon go? I do know that people use it in classrooms. I I wish we had more James Dietz books that were out there. I wish we had more that represented the West. I wish we had more that talked about this great American success story. Right. Um, William Brown, like Sarah Bickford, who you mentioned, um, uh, moved West, um, the largest unforced migration of people of African ancestry in this country came after the Civil War and to the West. 
And so like you guys can do the math and think right. of the archeological and historical stories that are there. Um, we don't know if William Brown, like Sarah Bickford, if he was born enslaved, all we know is that he was born in Boston. Okay. So what's interesting is he came to the West, you're right, started as a street shoe polisher, literally an up from the bootstrap story where um, there are historical records describing uh, an African-American owned saloon at one point in time in Virginia City, Nevada as a dive. Um, as a dive. And wow. I, I think it was even, even a dive or vile, the word vile was even used. And so... Wow. If you were to just to take that one historical reference and apply it to the archaeological remains, well, already the archaeological remains are contradicting that. And in a big way, not just with the nice glassware, not just with the expensive cuts of meat, but um, we even found a nice gas lighting system. And I say nice because... Um, gas lights often created like a nasty fume-filled atmosphere, and we happened to get lucky enough to find a patent in patent mark. Oh. And apparently, this particular gas lighting system intended to cut down on those obnoxious fumes and odors. Wow! And and mm. so, um, you know, I couldn't find anything seedy or vile about the place. I guess I back to your sensory thing about just what yes! it smelled like, what yeah. it looked like, what it what it would have been uh -huh. like to walk in. Could you imagine being an African American who? left during the Civil War, had been born into slavery, and then you get to walk into this really lovely saloon where you're accepted out here in the West. I mean, this period of Reconstruction must have been fascinating, but it gets so complicated, mm -hmm. right? Where did they it go? so complicated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so we put out the where did they go question is, is, is one, an important one. Yeah. We ended up, again, thanks to Ron James and, 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 you know, we used at the time I was working for the state of Nevada. We had like an all points bulletin um, media request that went out. Anybody who has family, um, uh, ancestors who were in Virginia City, please let us know. You know, we really would love family photos or right. stories. Anybody related to William Brown of the yeah, Boston right. Zoo? Yeah. Um, and, you know, so our public archaeology went, we, we worked with the NAACP and Reno. Um, uh, they were great. Um, we did programs with them. We did volunteer projects and field trips. But even they didn't have any connections with the descent community. But one of the cool offshoots is that an African-American playwright from San Diego somehow caught wind of the All Points Bulletin. Oh, wow. And he, he came up to see us. Oh, that's great. <laughs> wow. So, that's great. And, um, his name is Farrell Foreman, um, okay. and he is a dear friend. Um, since that time in the early 2000s, when he started putting together, he's writing a play, oh. a faction play based on William Brown's Boston Saloon. Um, it's become like his life's work. Oh, um, great. He's modified it over the years and he's like, he's playing with kind of the reality where, and I don't know where it is today. I, I miss him and it's time for me to reach out to him. But, um, you know, it wasn't just William Brown. There right. was a very well-known woman in Virginia City named Amanda Payne, who seems a lot like Sarah Bixford, and she uh. owned a lot of property and was an upstanding citizen. And, you know, you get these vignettes, mm -hmm. a few of them from the historical records. And as I've learned from, like, chasing a name from a reference in a newspaper into uh, a, a, a census, and then you end up perhaps at the site. Um, and 
the fact that there's somebody out there who wants to tell this story beyond the archaeology, like, I don't know where this is going to end up. But for me, that was one of the biggest honors ever because a a playwright is not preaching to our usual choir. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh Has a whole different audience that they can they can get interested and involved in. You're reaching them not only intellectually telling them a story that they didn't know, but you're hitting them emotionally and making them feel and understand. And you're kind of giving them that whole sensory experience we were were talking about. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask if he was married when he owned this saloon or there there weren't any other. Like, I just keep imagining (laughs) this guy coming out from the northeast of the country and trying to bring maybe some of the elegance of Boston city life to the saloon that he's naming after Boston out there. And you're thinking, what was his life like? Who did he leave behind? But what experiences? He must have known something about a good cut of meat, you know, yeah. and some good crystal stemware. <laughs> well, right. Absolutely. Wow. And, and somewhere along the line um, had the wherewithal to have Tabasco sauce brought in. Oh, yeah. Um, you, ha- you have to so tell us. I'm not sure where we are on time. And if I'm afraid to start telling the Tabasco sauce. I think you have to. You have I think, to I think it, even if that's I all we do, do we're just going to do We're going to do that. We're going to go for that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It is, it is a good story. And it, and, and it's an artifact story. Okay, that good. That takes us on yeah. a, on a, on an interesting trip. So, um, like many of the tens of thousands of artifacts that came out of this particular saloon site, um, one of them was a Tabasco bottle. I'm sure dying to show you guys a photo, um, but this is a radio podcast audience, so here I go with verbal description. Um, it, it emerged from the ground in over 20 colorless glass fragments. Oh, um, wow. We could see words like Tabasco in the field as it came out. And honestly, oh. we were like, hey, Tabasco bottle, meh, put it in the bag. We'll deal with it in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing that it was like the missing link <laughs> of Tabasco bottle. <laughs> um, and so um, like with everything, you know, we get our field work done and then there's a lot of work in the lab. And frankly, the bulk of the artifacts from the Boston Saloon were mended by a retired engineer named Dan Uriola, um, who has since passed away. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I feel like I owe a big part. uh, We all owe a big part of this project to him. He loved puzzles and he volunteered for years putting these things together. Um, He worked with us in the lab at the University of Nevada, Reno, and thank goodness he imprinted on many students there who got great artifact mending lessons. Um, Awesome. And anyway, one day he's like, well, I put this whole bottle together and he showed me this interesting Tabasco bottle. And I looked at it and was like, huh, you know, there is uh, an article in the journal Historical Archaeology written on the chronology of Tabasco bottles. So I'm going to read that article and I'm going to compare it with the bottle. And um, it ended up being that there were some differences, um, like the lip style was different on the mm-hmm. bottle. And, you know, the, the shoulder down where you go to the neck was different. And so it didn't I fit easily to, into the chronology. It, it didn't fit. Okay. No. Wow. And so I took some photos and reached out to the McElhenney company because they have a company historian. And I thought maybe they would have something in their files. And um, his response was, oh, could, could I see more photos? I've oh. never, I never, we don't know about a bottle like this. Like, oh my gosh. Whoa. And so apparently <laughs> in the late 1860s, 
when Edmund McElhenney started experimenting with his pepper sauce, he reused like perfume and cologne bottles and was selling it locally. Let's presume farmer's market style in Louisiana. <laughs> and wow. it was popular enough that he started having his own bottles made like that had the Tabasco pepper sauce like, Part embossed in the, on, the, on bottom, the bottle. And yeah. I think there was some design on the shoulder. Okay. Yeah. But what got the company historian's attention was that nowhere in their chronology does, you know, the embossing on the base fit with this lip style and the shoulder style. And he said, like, I think it's the oldest one we've ever seen. Like, we didn't even know that version exists. Like, that's like the prototype between when he was using uh, or reusing perfume and cologne bottles (laughs) and, and moving on to this other style. And he wanted wanted to buy it they wanted it and i was like well actually that gets us into black market black market tabasco bottle not for i know sale. i know oh that is not where we're going with this yeah. so it was cool though because the nevada state museum was starting to experiment with making replicas at the time and oh. once we realized that this was like a missing link in the tabasco bottle chronology you know unassuming there in the in this saloon um we had to, you know, it would be cool to show it around, but maybe we better make a replica since it is definitely a one of a kind. Yeah. Um, the historical story makes the plot thicken even more because as the company, wait, at, at the company historian, like did not get it. It's the, the original still in Nevada. Good okay. to know. Good. Okay. Good. Okay. But apparently the Tabasco company has no records of shipping to Nevada at that time. Um, and so we can only we the Boston Saloon building burned in a fire in 1875. Okay. So we have a pretty good terminus post quem for when that site is you know ended because we literally have the fire debris on top of everything else. Right. So um, we know by 1875 they weren't using this bottle anymore, and so we're all kind of scratching our heads if there's no records of how that bottle of you know of them shipping to Nevada. How did it get there? And then I started wondering, was it reused? Maybe they didn't even have, you know, I wanted to say, and they put Tabasco on their expensive cuts of meat. You yeah. know, I wanted to be able to say that with some level of validity, um, but but couldn't because it could have been reused. Well, while our dear, rest his soul, Dan Uriola was putting together some other artifacts, he happened to find like a piece of ceramic that had a red splotch on it. Mm. And so I said, don't clean that. (laughs) (laughs) It's Tabasco. um, (laughs) Well, the funny thing is I wasn't even thinking it was Tabasco. Did you lick it? I would almost want to lick it. I mean, you can't, (laughs) but I, yeah. Well, I thought it might have been blood, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And we were, at the same time, we were starting to experiment with doing, um, forensic analyses of artifacts and we were trying to lift dna off of artifacts and including a tobacco pipe that was held in someone's mouth at the boston saloon and if you're curious about that come back to that so we had kind of those ideas brewing so i wanted to have that little red splotch tested by our forensic lab that we were already working with because i was thinking dna yeah um (laughs) even though in retrospect I didn't have any descendants permission to get that DNA and it wasn't blood and thank goodness. Um, But the guy who was doing the research, you know, called us and said, 
So I, I got a weird thing. I'm trying to do a chemical residue analysis of this. There, it's definitely not blood, but because I work with a lot of crime scenes and like um, victims using pepper spray, I can pretty easily oh. identify the chemical signature of capsation. Yeah. I think there's some kind of like red pepper sauce. Was there any chance they would have been using condiments there? And I was like, <laughs> no <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. So you got the original yeah, recipe for Tabasco. <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. Well, wow. and there were also like some animal fats in it. And so like <gasps> it is smoking gun evidence of pepper sauce being used in a meal yes. with with meat. Yes. Right? <laughs> wow. Okay, I have I have two questions. So, when did he start bottling the Tabasco? <laughs> like, when is the earliest date he was he was making it? And like, could it this... was like er, early eighteen seventies. Oh, wow. oh, so so it could have been made in his kitchen. It could have been before there was a company in bottling. Because you're saying if it was just a reused, and then yes, this mystery of how it how it got there. Someone took it. Someone he brought it. Like someone, and already there was a hankering. I mean, someone came from the south who already knew about Tabasco sauce and wanted to put it on their meat. Yeah, yeah, that's so. That's fascinating. Wow, I know that's crazy. That's why I kind of, you know, in the Boston Saloon book, there, I, I, I think I rail a bit about. Hollywood's portrayals of the saloon and even, you know, the dime novels portrayals of the saloon, just, you know, with them being such violent places. Um, And it's primarily because on a slow news day, Mark Twain himself, when he was a reporter in Virginia City, admitted that, you know, he'd put on the fancy if somebody got shot in a saloon. So I think, you know, we have this strange misunderstanding today that saloons were places where people were seeking a brawl or certain death. And like the last thing any of us expected to find was a Tabasco bottle that told this story. And then, you know, rather than me trying to go too crazy with it and my interpretations, I usually like to turn it as a question onto the audience. Where would you have wanted to eat? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You'd want to go, you'd want to go to the place with the nice China and the, the, Elegant glassware and Tabasco sauce. <laughs> did any of did any of the other saloons have any Tabasco sauce at them or any condiments? No such thing. No Dang. such thing. I've, in well, fact, I've never found a Tabasco remnant on any other site. Wow, <laughs> so exciting! Anywhere. That's uh, so cool. Now, Kelly, I want you to go into the the DNA a little bit because yes, this was this was early days for DNA mm-hmm. um, when you were doing some of yes. this DNA work, and talk a little bit about that tobacco pipe. That's one of my favorite stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it's one of mine, too. Uh, and, and I think I need to tell you, you know, for full disclosure to everybody in the audience, I was trying to avoid gender issues um, oh, because my. I I was worried that I didn't have enough archaeological information for it. Oh. Um, and uh, we found a few uh, dress beads and buttons from really nice dresses. I actually took them to a button expert and she said, boy, these are from really nice dresses. These are expensive. And, you know, they wouldn't have just been run of the mill and it must've been a really fancy saloon. And I said, well, you know, all signs seem to be pointing to that. And then I said, it was actually owned by an African-American. 
and she got really quiet. I mean, like I could hear the gears turning. I could I could hear combating racism occurring at yeah. the moment. And yeah. you know, and she's yeah. saying like, and she actually said, I wouldn't have expected that, especially during Civil War and Reconstruction. Right. And I said, Yeah, you know, that's the amazing thing about the archaeological record, you know. The artifacts don't lie. We right. have to be aware of our biased interpretations. But damn, archaeology does have a way to democratize history. But I was still afraid to say anything about women's presence because mm. we don't know how those buttons got there. You know, right, right, <laughs> right, right. You know, some women's buttons in the saloon does not place a woman in the saloon. You know, and I was I don't know why right. I was being really conservative about my yeah. interpretations. Just, yeah. you know, worried. I was even worried that like. I didn't have any quote unquote African American archaeological signatures. I mm. I just I didn't want to go out on a limb with anything because I didn't want to invalidate the power of this story. Sure. And so that said, my my dear friend and colleague Julie Shablitsky, who was working down the slope in a district on the edge of Chinatown, who was finding syringe plungers and rolled copper needles and Mm. i kind of made this comment about her rolled copper needles when i was doing my master's work in michigan's upper peninsula in copper country i learned that copper will preserve things underground there is probably a good chance there could be dna on them their needles and so um, (laughs) she took them you know we kind of we were just you know the, the brainstorms you have in the field and this was you know this is like 2000 it was really pre right, that really kind of, new we were, wow so we were dabbling and we were sort of worried about you know are they gonna think we're like the ufo archaeologist um, <laughs> he found multiple dna signatures on those on on those needles Um, And people of all different ancestries, including like somebody who came from the Bahamas, like there was a really interesting story there. And, you know, the takeaway could have been, oh, my God, there was a flock out there. But he was also in a lot next to a hospital. And let's remember the 1870s were so pre-HIV. And I bet they weren't cleaning every needle after use. Right, (laughs) right, right. um, You know, there's a lot that went into that. But. The guy who did the DNA work was so excited that, you know, he shook her by the shoulders and she shook me by the shoulders. (laughs) Kelly, do you have any artifacts that would have gone into orifices or anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yikes, that's a scary one to answer. Not not the typical question an archaeologist gets. I know, I've got, you know, but I said, oddly, we do have a white clay tobacco pipe that I can tell you has like the teeth clench marks in it. Like it was in someone's mouth and maybe they could get DNIA from inside the borehole, you know, like shot in the dark. Yeah. Um, and, and so you can try to do that. And then here's this piece of ceramic with what I think is a drop of blood on it. The two things I could provide. Well, they came back right away. And this remember Kelly, who doesn't want to find women or doesn't think she can find women. And they said, Oh my God, Kelly, the DNA is pretty degraded, but it's from a woman. That's all we can tell you. And wow. I, I just wow. like, oh, oh, okay. Um, wait a minute. Are you, you know, I, yeah. I, who touched this? <laughs> so I was who licked it? Right, right. It. Yep. Did we you bite it in the field? Were you like this? <laughs> yeah, the I know. I know. I know. Did I? <laughs> I? I was such a doubter. 
that I thought it we had contaminated it. And sure enough, all the people who'd come into contact with it were women. And so we all submitted a cheek swab okay. and none of the DNA matched oh, with us. And good. the gentleman who was doing the analysis said, you know, guys, it's also really degraded. You know, yeah. I would call it quote unquote ancient. Um, it's been on this for a long time. You got a woman who, I, you know, who had a pipe in her mouth probably in that saloon. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, so awesome. Um, you know, yeah. So it, 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 you know, the, the gender issue didn't so much sneak up on me as, um, shook me hard and yeah. said, you recognize women. You remember Kelly, <laughs> that, yes. you know, to be human, it includes, um, you know, so-called race and culture. Um, it, it includes gender, right. it includes class, it right. includes so much. And at any given time, you can't let any of those go. Yeah. No, you and you can't, always be thinking of it's, them. It's like when and we, always, the yeah. women buried, you know, with, with, well, they assumed they were men because mm-hmm. uh, the Scythian women that are buried with their horses and full armor, they just presumed were men until they did the DNA. And it's so fascinating now that people are going back to sites and finding this, but you were right there on the cutting edge, not knowing what you might find. And so to me, just understanding this Western saloon, I feel like there's a lot more people it can still reach. And I think it is an inspiring story for other archaeologists and historians working in the West. Yeah. Giving us a completely different picture from what what movies have given us. And I don't even know where those stories came from. You know, the ones that we think we know, but that don't match up with the record. It's a weird story we've told ourselves. I think what we're finding is way better than what's coming up in these sensational fictitious accounts like oh my god they couldn't they couldn't have done this if they tried right <laughs> right right exactly you know i think that's so true that's so true it's so much more interesting and, it, and it's so much more complex but the story is so much richer because of that complexity so um and that's of course what you showcase in this book too is that complexity of this place and so that's what i love about yeah. it yeah yeah. Well, we're going to put it. Well, we're going to definitely know, put um, a link to where they can yeah. buy a used copy if there aren't any more new copies <laughs> out there. And then, Kelly, we're going to have to encourage you and we're happy to help you. Got to get another second edition out there of yeah. this book. That, yeah. that would be amazing. Well, and I think even now it would sell know, even better, especially with your updates. I think so. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you guys participate, but, you know, over the summer, there were the archaeology during the time of Black Lives Matter, you know, online panels. And yes. I, I sat in as, you know, an audience member and I watched all of those. And kind of going back to your point about the edited volume published in 2011, The Materiality of Culture, one of the things that the panelists said was, you know, we have so much great archaeology of the African diaspora, but it seems like so much of it has continued to focus on the era of being enslaved. And there's just not a lot going on yet um, with post-emancipation. And all I could think was, okay, but but yeah, but what about the 2011 book that Jody Barnes edited? And yeah. all of that was post-emancipation. And has it really been 10 years? And, 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 and gosh, we have a long way to go. Um, and so I, I feel like, I feel like now is the time. Um, and, it's interesting looking through a lot of my notes um, way back when I was using words like 
social justice. Wow. Oh, um, that's yeah, good. You know, yeah. and, and at the time I was just thinking that like the mere existence and knowledge of this saloon, even if we didn't have this rich archeological record accompanying it, just people knowing about it, like, yes. boy, yeah. that kind of shifts the register just a wee bit and, and, and actually does have the power to, to, to help with some historical justice issues. And, you know, I don't think it, it's an interesting time to be practicing archaeology. Mm-hmm. It is because um, I, I think so. trying to make the narrative, as you're saying, democratizing history has a way of democratizing the present, I think. Very much those yeah. things are mm-hmm. are so tightly entwined. And I think finding creative ways to get these stories out and tell them um, in, a, in a way that's engaging, like you said, it, it just creates a shift. And, and even for the people of our generation, the people of the next generation, it's going to become normal if we do it well enough. And then we move a step, you know, we move a step towards social justice. And that, that brings me to another question I had, because in one of the articles that I read that you had published on the, the Boston Saloon, it was for a symposium over in Ireland, I believe, with Cornelius um, Holtorf. Oh, is that yeah. right? And he's Mr. Yeah. Like archaeology and the public, like make it like Disneyland, make it like whatever. But we should be what? What do we owe? And it's sort of that question between our archaeologists writing for other archaeologists to be authoritative and scientific and peer-reviewed so we know our data is good, but do we also have this obligation? And whose obligation is it to to correct? Um, popular misconceptions about the record. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about your your um, sort of perspectives on that and being part of that symposium. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely have a long way to go. Um, and Cornelius Holtorf is, you know, he's an interesting character and yeah. you know a, a dynamic scholar. And I was I was honored that he asked me to be part of that. Um, I actually think, yeah, that might have ended up as a publication in World Archaeology. Yes, and that's we the one. Sort of, yes, um, we were talking about, um, you know, that was really combating the the, the, the Wild West story, um, and you know, I think uh, just circling back to the point that what what was really going on almost seems more interesting, and you know, using the Boston Saloon as an example. Um, you know, so many people were like, what makes this an African-American saloon? And they really wanted to know. And I, I was like, you know, you guys, um, I think my takeaway is, you know, I, I, I quote Maya Angelou, we are more alike than we are unalike. Like yeah. the with the exception of the Tabasco bottle and a few unique style tobacco pipes that just I've never seen anywhere before. Um, it, it, we have mass-produced products that are being used at all of these saloons. Um, in fact, it was really the those animal bones that helped us the most. Like, okay, wow, well, somebody had nice food, and, and maybe the nicest food was here. Um, and, and if only all of us could think about being William Brown. <laughs> right. And, you know, this yeah. is not a sensational story. Um, and even though he definitely eked out a good life for himself and clearly became a respected member of the community because he was a person of color, his life was still as not as easy as his white neighbors. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I actually, there was a time where I was criticized for perhaps 
putting too much of a positive twist on it because mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, look at him. He had a beautiful restaurant. He was, a, you know, this is a success story. We, you know, wow. Right. Right. Um, but, you know, to like, hey, remember there, Kelly, you know, you're, you're looking at the world with Pollyanna lenses mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that for your radio audience, um, I am a blue eyed blonde who had my right. DNA done <laughs> and I am like, you know, 78% Scandinavian and, and a mix of other things. Um, and so I was really self-conscious for the reasons already <laughs> about, you know, uh, making assessments about people from the past, just because I'm, I'm worried about my facts and being valid. But I was super worried that I was inflicting Kelly Dixon from a farm in rural Minnesota with a pony her view of the past mm, on this. Right. And yeah. so in order to work with that reality, um, I wanted voices from the past. We we couldn't find anybody who responded as representatives of the dissent community. Mm-hmm. And so to make sure that I used as many African-American voices as possible, um, I ended up uh, locating an African-American newspaper called the Pacific Appeal that was owned and edited by people of African ancestry, and they were based in San Francisco. And they had agents writing out from different communities throughout the West, including Virginia City, which is why I glommed onto it. Wow. Um, But um, think like Washington, Oregon, all over. And so um, I went over to UC Berkeley to their archives where they had the microfilm, and I actually purchased the rolls of microfilm. I had copies made and I went through every one of those looking for references from people of color, what it was like to be in Virginia City. But at the same time, I got this snapshot of the whole West. Right. Um, and it was rough. It was bad. And as yeah. a matter of fact, the whole one of the chapters in my dissertation was just tr- pulling all of this the stories of what what it was like. Um, and you could hear people were lamenting how hard it was. Wow. And so um, I don't think we can dare overlook that part of the story. And and to me, it makes William Brown even more, even more. of a remarkable It's even more character. of an achievement. And, and to think there was that much success, because we do hear these these stories you've told some crystal about folks in Bozeman and then to hear how you know they still were they knew it was not appropriate for them to show up to certain things because of their mm-hmm. color even if they were financially successful in business yeah. there was still they, that they knew their it must yeah. they knew their place right mm-hmm. that was the so but then to know reconstruction ended and it was it was let go and then what happened afterwards is is so horrible. And I think that's a story we haven't necessarily told well, and we can. Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to tell the post-Civil War, you know, emancipation stories to understand mm-hmm. then how badly it must have been. Because if it wasn't even good during post-emancipation, it got so much worse. And you get the birth of the nation and all that stuff at the mm-hmm. turn of the century, and things yeah. just go downhill. And I do think that's a history we've not told well in this country and we have especially now you know um our our ability to contribute to mm-hmm. that narrative is has a social justice impact today yeah you know um i've yeah. been listening for the last week or so um to this podcast called 1865 and it's an audio mm-hmm. drama have you heard of this kelly 
Yeah. Yeah. And so Marsha Mar- Fulton put it on, to, put me onto it. And um, I've been just binging it this last week because it tells that story. It starts with the assassination of Lincoln and really tells the story of, of 1865 through 1869, which are those critical years mm. um, when Andrew Johnson was coming into office then, of course, after Lincoln and and why, you know, as a Southerner, he wasn't supportive of these things that um, Lincoln had you know, probably was going to put forth after the Civil War. And and so, but it's an audio drama. So it really puts you into the story. And like we were talking about before, you hear you hear the sounds, you feel like you're in the room with, with Ed, Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War at that time, and it kind of focuses on him. But um, it's it's a great, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a I've never really listened to an audio drama before, but this has really pulled me in and and has made me better understand that time right at the end, um, kind of in 1865, right at the end of the Civil War. So anyone out there, listen to this because it's really important and it gives you some clues as to why we're in the place we're in today. You know, it makes it makes the history we're living through currently. uh, You you completely understand it. Yeah, and like the West served as such a pressure valve mm-hmm. release to to try to not deal with all the stuff that they knew they were going to have to. If you're emancipating them, all these people become free so they don't have to be property mm-hmm. that the North had to manage if they win. All these things had to happen, and, and then the, I think just the West was a way to just sort of not deal. And mm-hmm. then eventually... Um, that sort of frontier interior closes yeah. and, and everything comes home to roost and, and you've got so many different groups of people. And we haven't even talked about your work along the Chinese railroad <laughs> with Stanford yeah. and how you mentioned right. Stanford had made all his money, the the one who started the university off of the railroad. Is that right? And now they're funding though an amazing project, the Chinese railroad workers in North yeah. America project so did you start that back in 2012 or something? Where Where is that now? Because that sounds like a fascinating way yeah. to, and we'll just ask for a quick snapshot before we wind down, but it's another important history yeah. that is hopefully getting told. Yeah, now. well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by crediting a, a past PhD student, Dr. Chris Merrick, who is oh. now the Utah... State Historic Preservation Officer. Oh, yeah, wonderful. we, we um, love Chris Merrick. His dissertation yeah. that he... Yes, yeah. I know. Oh, Chris Meredith. Yeah. Is <laughs> um, so as you know, um, he turned his doctoral dissertation into a book um, and, and he, he was trying to do everything he could to, you know, have a one stop shop for the Chinese in Montana with the idea that so many people could build on that and go from there. So one of the things that he had done was um, he connected with this retired railroad employee named Gary White's. And Gary said, hey, I've seen all these these Chinese railroad sites along the northern Pacific. Um, You know, they pretty much extend from Perma to Cabinet Landing along the Flathead slash Clark Fork River. Um, He had kept records of them and notes. And so that's how we started to learn that, Mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, somebody knows about these sites. And um, so that ended up being part of Chris's dissertation. Um, And. We ended up going on a few field trips with Mr. White's and he took us to a few of these sites and, you know, it was full on like stand by me where we were running along a narrow stretch of railroad to beat a train or else you jump into the <laughs> river. Face. Um, and 
you know, we, we just wanted to learn more about these sites. Well, meanwhile, Stanford, their historians, their American studies, their Asian studies programs um, were very, very aware of the fact that their salaries and their livelihood was really based on the blood, sweat and tears of Chinese railroad workers, knowing that Leland Stanford was one of the railroad barons there when they hammered in the golden spike at Promontory Point in 1869. And um, uh, they were seeking um, for 2019 to do something for the 150th anniversary. And uh, to their shock, they couldn't find one diary or journal penned by any of those thousands of railroad workers. And they tried to start an oral history project and they started working with... um, uh, clan communities back in southern China. Um, but to make a long story short, they had to go slumming and call the archaeologist because, <laughs> um, you know, they they uh, they ended up talking to archaeologists at Stanford who said, well, you know, I know a lot of our colleagues have all kinds of work with Chinese sites in the West. Maybe some are railroads. And so that actually allowed us, um, Chris Merritt and I worked with, with Gary to publish a paper on um, what we knew about these sites Gary had observed on the Northern Pacific. And he was happy that we gave him co-authorship, but we said, well, we wouldn't have known this without yeah, you. Right. Of course you're a co-author. Wonderful collaboration and, with like an, an amateur avocational, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, he deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So Stanford picked that up and invited us to be part of a delegation think tank where they brought everybody together at Stanford. And then they actually sent us all to Southern China and we all shared stories and it was cool. It was a great um, opportunity to understand the global uh, diaspora of Chinese people, not just here to the West. um, But that particular story had much relevance. If anything, what we learned is that there's really only a handful of Chinese railroad worker sites known or, 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 you know, or documented. And the sad reality is many of the people in China kept asking about where all the mass burials were. Oh. Um, and the railroads did not keep records of who died. Mm. We don't know. Um, and so, you know, stay tuned. This is a job for the Institute for Canine Forensics, and there are already projects underway. I've always wondered, because they say people would have been maybe dug up their bones and sent back, but that's only if they were in a place where people already knew and were tending. And and you just know in these campsites, and even in these early boom towns, people died early on when there was nothing and no records. So that's mm-hmm. that's still a so I saw it looked like um, digitally available. Maybe there are some some oral history accounts, um, yeah. a, a collection of artifacts that people can understand sort of the materiality of of their life, um, uh, as well as um, probably the location of oh the payroll records. That was yeah. something that at least you probably yeah. had some way to connect some people, and then an understanding of what that grueling work must have been like and. And probably how poorly compensated they were. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we will oh, stay yeah. tuned, Kelly. It sounds yeah. like that's been a successful. I know, I know that could ongoing. be that could be its own podcast. And don't get me started on the amazing sites associated with Chinese heritage in Montana. Oh um, yeah. As well. I, yeah. I mean, but 
I could choose any group from all over the world, and I bet there are sites associated with their heritage here. Right. So, yeah. It's um, amazing, isn't it? I this never. This is not a four hour podcast. <laughs> I know. I had no idea when I we'll moved here. To, yeah. We'll have to talk to you we'll again. Have you again. We'll yeah. have you again. Yeah, yeah. We can, we'll talk about those things. I mean, there's we have, we, have, we have lots of questions we didn't get to, so we'll do this again. And... <laughs> That's the best kind of podcast, right? When you only get through like a third of your questions. <laughs> okay, so Kelly, awesome. we could, of course, talk to you all day, but because time's running short we just want to tell you how grateful we are that you spent the time with us and um, spent so much time sharing about your work and bringing so much life and enthusiasm to it we know so many of your students and we've even interviewed them and um, you are well loved by your students you give them so much time I don't know how you also do that and raise a family and keep it all together so you're you're an inspiration for a lot of reasons yeah so Kelly we've had your student Aaron Brin on the podcast and also Tim Urbaniak and, you know, oh, so, yeah. so, and, and your student, <laughs> and Nikki Manning and Kate Gonzalez and. <laughs> So, and we'll probably have many more. All the roads are leading back to yeah, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm great. I am. I'm so glad that you have interviewed them. They are. They are wonderful. They're sharp. And, and they're great. And goodness, I'm. I'm fortunate to be working with them. You know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's the, the weirdest thing about this job is. Everybody you work with leaves. Yeah, right. I know you have to say goodbye to every I, single one I of know, them. I know, it's hard. It never gets easier. Uh-huh. It's oh. like being a mother to them all. I know. Yeah, uh-huh. I know. I know. That's so hard. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week in your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past. So Kelly, tell all your students about this podcast and and our Facebook page. Um, So people out there, make sure to find that and like it. Um, We put links to all our podcast episodes on this Facebook page, but we will also put up all all the articles we talked about today, or at least the ones that are accessible to the okay. public. <laughs> yeah. And and Kelly, can we put up the the photo of the Tabasco bottle? Yeah, I was just thinking, like, oh, I've been wanting to share screen with you guys so many times. Yes. And so, um, yes, I can. I, Great. Um, if you need any PDFs of anything else, I'll send them, but I'll be happy to send you a photo of the Tabasco. Okay. Thank All you. right. Well, Thank we'll you. be sure to put that on our Facebook page. And so everyone can see the Tabasco bottle for sure. But thanks. <laughs> thanks so much, Kelly. And thanks to all of you out there listening. And hope we can, you can join us again to find out more about the, the dirt, dirt on the past. past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, and our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy. Original music by Lawson Alegria. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>